Hey, so today I'm talking to Evan Leiborn, who is at the moment working at IBM as an agile coach. Uh, before moving to IBM in Singapore, he worked as an agile consultant in Australia. IBM made him an offer he could not refuse, he told me, and that's why he went to Singapore. So, and today we're talking about agile, um, lean startup, and distributed agile, because Evan has a lot of experience on this. And this is my topic. So, Evan, why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you, Hugo. So, I've been doing Agile now for 13 years, which uh, makes me cry a little inside because it seems like such a long time. You still look uh, young. <laughs> it's really been about helping organizations to, to be Agile, helping them to understand what uh, agility means at a corporate level. I started out as a developer where most Agilists start, but very quickly went into uh, business management and business agility, taking Agile outside IT and applying it to the rest of the organization right. from HR to sales to marketing and so forth. Exactly, yeah, because that seems to be the trend. It all started with Agile software development and now it moves to more of a corporate level, management level. That's it, it, it and I think there's a, we're in such a dynamic market at the moment. There's so much variation or um, I, I, disruption is the term you hear used quite a lot these days that uh, companies, organizations, big and small, need to be adaptable and agile and lean and all those fancy buzzwords to remain relevant in, the, in today's market. So uh, we're seeing a lot more organizations from uh, the small uh, small startups all the way up to the big enterprises such as IBM really trying to to be agile companies exactly maybe an interesting topic to dive into is uh, you, you wrote a book which is called directing the agile organization and you said that one of the reasons IBM hired you is to actually make IBM agile and I thought about that in preparation to this interview it seems like a daunting challenge to me because IBM is huge. I mean, they once, like a decade ago, they made this move from a hardware manufacturer to a service organization, sort of agile, fast, quick, uh, impressive thing. But how is that to, uh, maybe let's see, like what are, what are your three takeaways from the book which could be applied to an organization like IBM or some little, little more, uh, like a smaller organization? There aren't many companies bigger, but exactly, yeah, that's the thing. Three takeaways is kind of hard, but I'll do my best. Yeah. So, I think the first one that I think we need to focus on is leadership, and and I don't just mean the executives; I mean leadership at all all levels, from uh, the janitor all the way up to the CEO. Uh, individuals need to be empowered and take accountability for their work. We need to have this idea of delegated outcomes, not just delegated actions. Uh, we need to have trust in our employees. And, and this level of organizational agility, the ability to pivot, to use the lean startup term, the ability to adapt to a changing market doesn't necessarily always come from the top. It comes from the most appropriate place and the most appropriate people need to have the ability to shape the organization by themselves. And a lot of what I talk about is about delegating outcomes. It's if you say, 
Hugo, I want you to write this paper by Tuesday morning. That's not delegating an outcome, that's delegating an action. That's saying, here's something I want you to do, go and do it. And that's all well and good, but there's no room for adaptability, innovation in that statement. There's just command and control. On the other hand, if, if I turn around and say, Hugo, we need to uh, improve the, uh, the quality of this product. Or Hugo, we need to uh, convince a customer that Agile is the right way to go. It's not, I'm not telling you to write a paper because I think uh, you should right. write a paper convince a customer. I'm telling you the outcome I want you to achieve. And then I'm letting you as the expert get on with doing it because that's your job. We hire great people to do great things. We don't want to then put them in a little box and then tell them sit in this box and don't move. We want them to go, well, you're great. Go do great things. I'll make sure anything's out of the way. Off you go. And I think that's probably the first one. The first idea is about strong leadership at all levels. Which can, I, can, I can imagine that this is also incredibly hard, especially if you're used to sort of a command and control way of working. And, and I mean, not only from a leadership perspective, but as a lot of people who like to get orders. So I can, yeah, no, and, and so, okay, so I'll answer that in two ways. Okay, so I'll answer the second one first. Yes, not everyone can be agile. Some people like orders. Some people right. like to have that uh, structure in their life. And not, likewise, not all organizations are going to go agile. So what we're going to see is we're going to see some people who can't be agile, who, who don't want to work in that way. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no value judgment in that statement. All we're trying to do is make sure that they, they'll work in a particular way and they'll move to organizations that do work in that way. But if we want an innovative, dynamic, agile organization, then we want people who can work in that way. And so there's a sort of a cause and effect relationship there. But to your first point, um, which was, sorry, what was your first point? Well, that it can be incredibly hard for a company that is used to command and control to change. So, so for, for, for organizations that are, as organizations grow, if, if I'm an organization of 10 people, I can use command and control because as an individual leader, I know what everybody's doing. When we're at 100, okay, I can just keep control. Right? I probably still know everybody's name. Right? I probably know what everyone's doing. But once we're hitting about 150, 180, 200, 300, 500, 1,000, I lose, I've automatically lost control. There's yeah. no, I don't even know everyone's name anymore. At best, I know roughly what they're working on. And so what do we do? Command and control. We put in place process. Yeah. So I don't need to know what these 20 people are working on as long as I know they're following the process. But this is, this is where the problem arises because the more rigorous and strict you make the process, the more rigorous and strict you put in place controls to, so that you as an individual fundamentally understand what's happening, we lose the ability to adapt because the process is by its nature, it smooths out all the variations in reality. And when something occurs that is outside the standard process, which is happening more and more these days, you fundamentally lose the ability to adapt. So as a leader, it's, it's, it's understanding that, it's actually understanding trust. It's understanding that you need to trust the people who you employ to be better than you to trust them to do their job put in place checks and balances to 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 weed out those who are fraudulently abusing that trust right but still being able to step back and go i don't need to know everything 
I just need to know that they're working towards a common good, a common outcome. Right. One, one thought that occurred to me is that in a culture like, for example, the Indian culture, which is largely based on hierarchy and that's, that's, uh, that's strongly ingrained into the habits of people, I guess that changing this hierarchical approach that actually does not completely match with the agile mindset, that must be incredibly hard. And IBM deals with this, I suppose. So we have a lot of yes, people in, in India. The, I was speaking at an Agile conference in India a couple of years ago, and, and someone said something that has stuck with me ever since, because uh, I think it, it sort of summarizes some of the issues that you face, and that was, we were talking about transformation, organizational transformation, and talking about um, getting rid of project managers, talking about moving to non-hierarchical organization structures, and, and a project manager sort of piped up and says, like, okay, if I'm no longer a project manager, okay, if I, if I no longer hold this position in the organization, what do I tell my mother-in-law that I do? <laughs> that, that was an eye-opener for me because I actually, it was only at that moment that I realized that in many cases, people's self-identity, their sense of self-worth is often tied not just by their job, but also by their position in the organization. Uh, and it may seem obvious in hindsight that of course this is always the case but, but it was actually quite enlightening and you are right we need to help people to have a sense of self-worth have a sense of value in their organization that's not necessarily tied to a hierarchical position and that can be very very difficult and that's one of the big challenges that we do face when uh, in any organization doing sort of a business agility transformation. Yeah, yeah. what you refer to is maybe also the, the, the value of status, which indeed is important in the Indian culture because people want to say to their father-in-law, this is, I, I'm working at Infosys and I'm a product manager and then I've got status. So um, I was also thinking about a, a friend of mine who works in a big bank and she was just mentioning it. I'm always forced to sort of follow procedures it seems to yeah that I think such like if you have a rigid organization like a bank that just has procedures which are probably also needed to ensure you know regulations are met and stuff uh, that that must be hard like I, I imagine a bank in India then yeah no it's, it's true but, but I think we also have to be clear that there are constraints are actually a good thing and, and this is actually one of the points I wanted to make earlier as well it, it, it's it's okay to have constraints. It's okay to have a, uh, a constraint of a process, a procedure, especially if it's legislative or, or regulatory driven, um, because we can innovate around those constraints, okay, within the domain that we operate in, right. okay, within the that we are, which we are bound by. The key here is about uh, putting in constraints where we don't need to. And that's one of the big problems that we face, right? where we put in place a, a process around product delivery, a process around project management, which in and of themselves are, it's unique almost every single time that we run. So why do we have to have things quite so standardized? Exactly. What I think what you implied a couple of minutes ago is that it could, it's also possible for an organization to you know, have a specific team or a part of the organization turn into an agile way of working while another part of the organization stays where it is. It, it, that's true, but we have to be careful as well because 
you're only as agile as your weakest point or, or your least agile point. So the most common situation that 99% of organizations around the world are probably in right now is where IT is agile, but finance isn't. So what happens? We have a highly dynamic, agile IT function who adaptable, they're working in an agile way, they've got empowered teams, um, and they're responding to the customer demand, and an 18-month budget cycle, okay, which limits at, with predetermined benefits and expectations and outcomes and outputs. So how do you marry these two up? Now, most organizations in the world have done this and, and, and they've worked out ways of doing it, but if you could also make finance agile, if you can yeah. make them operate in an adaptive, dynamic, engaged, collaborative way, then you can be much, as an organization, you can be much more adaptable rather than, yes, IT is agile, but we're still bound by an 18-month planning cycle and forecasting cycle. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that I often think about is in software development, the practical application of agile is, is, is basically Scrum. And to me, it always seems that Scrum is sort of a method. It's not really follow these steps and it will work, but you've got artifacts, you've got specific roles that people should follow and play, you've got you know, a pre-scheduled communication or meeting rhythm. And I think it is rather easy to sort of do a training get, for example, a Scrum a product owner certification or Scrum master, and then start following this process. If I think about Agile in general, it's more of a mindset, but I can imagine it's tough to sort of get from a mindset to a practical implementation. How, how do you do that? So Agile has become a, a sales pitch in and of itself. So you can't sell Agile, but you can still sell Scrum. Because Agile, you're right, it's a mindset, it's the values and, and, and principles of the Agile manifesto. Yeah. It, it's, it's a way of working. You, you wrap it in Scrum or Kanban or Safe or DSDM, right? and, and suddenly you have a, something that you can write up in a PowerPoint deck and sell. You can run training on very easily. So by ne it's an economy, okay? We buy and sell things all the time. It's how business operates. So for a business to, to, to operationalize agile in a financial setting, then we do that through the framework, through things like um, Scrum, as you say. Now, obviously, as organizations become more mature, as we really try and focus more on the cultural and behavioral changes, then yes, we need to move away from process-driven agile and more towards principle or value-driven agile. And, and most agile practitioners who've got any decent level of experience will actually try and always start from there. Uh, and so there's, there's enough value push in, in any organization so that we don't forget that. And then of course, Scrum and DSDM and, and Kanban all start from those foundational principles. So Absolutely. they're baked in, they're there, we just need to call it out. And then you mentioned earlier about distributed agile. This is actually one of the keys for how to make distributed agile work as well. And that is to not focus on the process or, or focus, but not entirely on the process, but focus on the culture as well. And like the, the culture matters, build a, a sense of team, build a sense of, um, of a, a relationship between the team in India or the Ukraine and the team in uh, and the customer in the US or Europe or Australia and get them to actually have that cultural and relationship, that trust with one another. And, and whether it's distributed, co-located, whether it's IT or non-IT, it doesn't matter. 
like we have to have that foundation of culture, that foundation of values and principles. So what you're basically saying is if a team is distributed by adopting a agile mindset for the whole team, this would actually help a team to bridge the, 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 yeah, the, the challenges you have for being distributed in different countries usually. Certainly that is one way. Uh, I think we need to, it's not going to solve the, the challenges of distribution immediately. Um, right. Obviously brings challenges and opportunities with those challenges, but it, the inverse is true. If we do not focus on team, if we do not focus on culture, distribution will fail. However, right. focusing on it is not always a guarantee of success either. Right? We do need to have a, uh, a strong mix of uh, good uh, technical tools, communication tools, uh, the team culture, the team engagement, the empowerment of the team, and the process and the supporting practices behind that. Um, obviously, teams need to have a sense of empowerment so that if something's not working, they've got to make it work for themselves. We want teams to have accountability for how they operate. And so if a distributed team f fails, then they share part of that failure as well because they're accountable and empowered to be accountable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can, I can however, imagine that at a certain point in time, we would need some sort of distributed agile coach because I see that in the market, a lot of people, like there's every, every agile team has a agile coach who's actually on the sideline helping that team to perform better. But a distributed agile co coach, I haven't found yet because that person would actually, because if you make this, the team accountable for the results themselves, you will still face issues between, you know, a team in Australia and a team in India or Philippines. Uh, they have their own culture, they work in their own way, and somehow they have to, to, to integrate. And you have less opportunities to do so because you're distributed. So distributed agile coach might help that. So, so I've seen distributed agile coaches on the market, and, and there are a lot of coaches who are able to work in a, uh, in a multicultural environment, okay, where they've got one team in Australia, one team in US, one team in India, and they're able to coach effectively. Now, obviously, face-to-face -face communication is preferable, right? and so having local coaches in each region, and as you get bigger, that's actually the, the better model, but have those coaches sort of uh, collaborate together in a distributed co-coaching co team, if that makes sense as well. But um, I also think we can't rely too heavily on coaches. And, and, and I've seen a lot of people come up in the, in the, in the market as coaches, which... Well, there's a lot of agile coaches over here. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and there's coaches and there's coaches. And, and, and I don't want to denigrate people. There's a lot of really great people out there, a lot of people who know what they're doing and, and absolutely are very powerful at engaging teams and, and upskilling teams but we also have to be careful not to overemphasize or, or actually let me rephrase to de-emphasize the accountability of the team for their own performance as well all right so so yeah because otherwise you'll get blame the coach like things go wrong and the coach is wrong yeah that makes sense yeah. how many times does the does a soccer team lose the um uh, the world cup and the coach get fired okay so yeah, yeah so yeah, exactly. This is probably what happens if you <laughs> rely too much on the coach. Another thing, another thing that I wanted to discuss is you, you've got experience with teams of over 100 people working distributed, as, as I understood from you. Yeah. One of the things that many people face is if I use Scrum to manage my distributed software team, 
how do I assign roles on a certain shore? Like how basically because if Scrum basically says it's best to work collocated, so the product owner is in the same room as the Scrum master, the team, uh, all the testers, uh, designers, every, everybody is, even if it's a client, it would be best to have that client sit in the same room as the team. Now you ideally just, that is the case. Again? And ideally that is the case. So, exactly. So it reduces the latency of communication. Now, yes. um, the larger the team, the more effective we can actually do distribution. It, it seems ironic, but small teams do distribution worse than large teams do, okay? And, and partly the reason is about redundancy. So when we do um, distribution at scale, there's, there's three things we need to factor in, okay? The first is we need to factor in each, let, let's call them delivery hub or, dist, or, or delivery center, okay? Let's say India, Ukraine, Brazil, and the US, whatever, okay? Each of these centers needs to be uh, self-contained in terms of skill set, okay? You don't want the developers in India, the testers in Brazil, and the VAs in, in the Ukraine. That, that's going to be a, that will fail, right? Because you're gonna have this massive handoff um, process and any, and, and any issue is gonna have a minimum 24 hour turnaround time, right? So each 100 people, okay, Seven plus minus two in a team, so 100 people is about 15 teams, give, give or take. Those 15 teams, all right, each team is located in a single location. So you may have 10 teams in India, three teams in Brazil, two teams in the UK. All right? And each team is functionally independent of each other. Yeah. Right? You have a product owner, the product owner is going to be based in, and so this is the second point, you've got a product owner which is based in wherever the customer is based. Okay? Let's call them the chief product owner. The chief is going to then have proxy product owners in each location or ID. Yeah. Now yeah. the proxy product owners in each location are accountable for a certain subset of functionality. Okay, And the sprint backlogs are going to be drawn from that functional domain. So each each country, each geographic region is going to be focused on a particular functional area, right? And each team is going to be uh, focused on a particular subset of that. The, product, the, the proxy product owner in each location, um, which so may not necessarily be in each location, you may just have that distributed, but you are going to have a, a communication and a latency problem. You have a product ownership team, okay, with proxies in each location, and you reduce that latency. As long as those proxies are, have delegated authority to make decisions and that's the key point we have to be actual product owners in the context of making decisions around the product that they're owning if that makes sense so by using functional teams distributed around the world it doesn't matter by using proxy product owners okay and by putting in place a strong technical foundation for integration which is the third thing right? and so this is about technical agility um, some people might talk about DevOps. I sort of put technical agility and DevOps in the same basket as, as they're interrelated, right? But these are tools and mechanisms and the technical ways of working that allow us to bring those 15, the work from those 15 teams and bring it together in a seamless and preferably automated way, right? Put those three things together and you have a very successful scaled distributed project or product. Right. I, I like this concept of a pro proxy product owner because I, I did a Scrum Master certification, I think, two years ago. And 
this was one of the issues that I faced because I asked the trainee, you know, one of the major issues we have, even if you have the Scrum team remotely, so you've got the Scrum master and the whole team over there, but the product owner is on the client side. Now, how do you, because that guy cannot move. So the only thing which I also apply in, in my own company is to indeed have this proxy product owner, but Scrum says you can't do that. At least it's suboptimal. It's better not to do it. So if you've got 15 teams, Scrum actually starts being suboptimal in and of itself. And, and, and that's why we have things like large-scale Scrum, distributed agile delivery, safe, Nexus. Uh, like these are all forms of scaling Scrum. Now, when I say we have multiple product owners, we actually still only have one product backlog. Okay, so the product backlog is still a, uh, a single document wherever it is, it doesn't matter, which lists all the user stories, all the features which are being developed, which are ranked or, or ordered in the based on business value and technical dependencies. Okay, yeah. so that's beautiful because we have one of those and the proxy product owners work as a single team into that. Now, by having a chief product owner, which which is the which sits within the strict definition of a product owner role. They delegate some of that to local proxies who act as the, uh, the communication points. They're the ones who answer the questions. By the way, what does this story mean? I don't understand. They're the ones who can have the day-to-day -day conversation. And, and even if you had 100 people co-located in a single location okay, with the customer, with the product owner, all right, that single product owner may not even have a the time to, to be the only product owner. Okay? You may end up bringing a proxy product owner in, yeah. even for complicated scale delivery, all right? 100 people, yeah, you could probably manage that with one person, 200, 300, 500, 1,000. Once you've got 1,000 developers, you're gonna need multiple product owners anyway, okay? So this proxy idea isn't necessarily strict scrum, but it is very effective. Yeah, exactly, but I think it's also important not to be too rigid about the uh, concepts in scrum. So. You also mentioned that for bigger teams, it's probably easier to work distributed than smaller teams. Why, why did you say that? Uh, because there's redundancy. So if, if, if I have a team of 10 or 20 distributed around the world in two locations, let's say, then there's likely to be individual skill sets that are in one location and are not in another, okay? Let's say UX designer, okay? In that team of 20, you've got uh, all those three teams, which make up 20 people total, all right? You've got one UX designer, all right? So how does that person, where do they fit? How do they work with their colleagues and counterparts in another location and so on and so forth? So uh, the smaller the team, the more impact the communication latency is going to have. Yes. The larger the team, or teams, I should say, multiple teams, okay? Uh, or, or the larger the, pr the product delivery, the less impact or the more redundancy that you have, the less impact that distribution is going to have. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Maybe even because of the sort of price time constraint. I mean, a large organization can just, it can go a little bit longer. A team can take more time to learn how to work. Whereas in a smaller organization, if they fill within two months, then I was in a meeting at Cognizant a few weeks back. It was about distributed agile. And, and they said, you know, it's typical that if a team starts, it takes about three months 
for the distributed team to get adjusted. So we invest that time and we accept that things fail in that period. And then they will perform after the three months, which made me think, you know, if I, if I tell my smaller clients what this guy says, I'm outside, I'm out the door on day one. <laughs> well, okay. So, so it's, it's the traditional concept of forming, norming, storming. Okay. So yes, when you're in the process of forming and norming, then there's, there's going to be issues at play, yeah. right? But it's not necessarily to say that you will be unproductive in that time. It's just saying that you won't be as productive. Right, exactly. That's what he said, yeah. So I think what we need to understand in that model and in that way of working that uh, larger organizations don't have... Don't think that larger organizations are more resilient to that sort of failure, okay? I, Ten, the cost of 10 people not being productive is low compared to the cost of 100 people not being productive. All right? So the idea is to find ways in which that a team, a distributed team, can form and norm but still add value to the customer. All right? so, so keep teams together who've worked together in the past. All right? Work with people who are... Uh, who, who have done this form of development in the past, so on and so forth. Right, that makes sense. We're, we're almost at the end of our interview, but there's one question I wanted to, to ask you. I saw that in Agile India, you had given a presentation about the traditional project management triangle, because there's always a sort of tension between clients expecting a fixed budget for whatever project they want to do with you, as a service firm, for example, and the Agile way of working, which actually says, you know, we, we're, we're not going to fix the budget, but we're going to use your budget and deliver as much as we can. Please enlighten us on how you see this kind of tension between fixed price and Agile. So let's also be clear about one thing before we go any further. So I've got nothing against fixed price. It's fixed scope that's the problem. So... Fixed price, fixed time are legitimate constraints in an Agile project. It's saying that we're going to have a team of seven work for 20 iterations. That's our fixed time. That's our fixed price. Beautiful. Okay? As long as we have a variable scope. So right. it's, it's contractually, it can be a little bit difficult sometimes. And, and, and I'll, I'll mention two things which are at play, which, which we can use to, to help sell this idea to our customers. And the first is trust, okay? And I talk in that, in, in that talk, I talk about the trust triangle, trust pyramid, where we start at reference-based trust, where I trust you because a third party has told us, has introduced. So I have no personal experience. We then have contract-based trust, and that's where most organizations stop. And the problem with an agile delivery model is contract-based trust means that I need to, if it's not in the contract, I don't trust you. Okay, and so we want the scope in the contract. Now, what we want to do is get to the point of identification-based trust and then partnership-based trust. And once we're at the top of that pyramid, then the contract is an enabler, not a barrier. And, and that's something that we want to try and work towards. And we're not going to get there instantly, all right? But that's the goal and the intended goal. But the second point as to how we get there is about helping the customer understand value. Right. And, and so when we talk about a project um, or, or a contract in this case, we're talking about a, a, an, an output, something that we're going to create. Now, 
that something that we're going to create is has an intangible or a tangible value to the client or the customer who's asking us to create it. So what we need to do is change the conversation around the from the output because the output is irrelevant because that will change. It's agile. If you want, we'll add new things. We'll change it. We'll do all sorts of different bits and pieces to make it better. Right? But over here, over here, we have our value. What is valuable to you as the customer? If we start the conversation in the context of value, in terms of we want, uh, this is a value, this is important to us, this is how it's going to be used, all right? And look at that backlog, put a value measure against that backlog, da, 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 all right? We can now have a very good conversation about scope doesn't matter, or at least the detailed scope doesn't matter. The constraints, the bounding frame does. Okay, but the constraints, uh, but, but the but the requirements don't matter. All that matters is value. All right, we will deliver as much value as we can in the time, fixed price, fixed time allotted to us. All right, and we will work in your, the customer's value order. Okay, efforts and and technical dependencies notwithstanding. All right, and great. That's now changed the entire conversation, the entire contract conversation, away from fixed scope, away from outputs, to variable scope and value, okay? And that then takes the first point about bringing us to that triangle, that, that, that trust triangle, right? yeah. So, yeah. That's funny because, again, it's a sort of mindset shift that you, so what, you should always start with trying to change the mindset of your client or whoever engages with Agile and take it from there. It is. It, 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 it's fundamentally, it's a different way of working. It's a different way of thinking. Right? So the, the practices and processes are superficial to that. Right. One thought one that I had in the weekend is like, did, did, is there any case where a construction company has actually applied Agile or Scrum to uh, ooh, house? Uh, I don't know. I know that um, there's, there's a, a car uh, well, experiment, Wikispeed, which is building a car using car. Scrum. Um, so it's a bunch of academics, to be fair, so it's not course, exactly yeah. a production model. There are engineering companies who are using Scrum um, right. and using agile techniques quite effectively um, because the cost of change in engineering is actually reducing. Technologies mm -hmm. like 3D printing is meaning that we can prototype um, and we can actually build components of an engineering, a physical system very, very rapidly. And we can iterate. We can go, no, that's not working. We're going to do iteration two, iteration three, iteration four. Right? So engineering companies are starting to use agile practices as well. Construction, to be honest, I've, because of the cost of change, yeah. all right, um, I can't think of any construction company that's using agile. And to be honest, I don't think any construction really would. Right? Maybe not. Agile when the cost of change is low. Yeah. Right? Soft engineering, 3D printing, and so forth. Yeah, it's way more flexible than construction. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Once that concrete starts pouring, if, if, if the customer yeah. asks for a variation, out come the sledgehammers. Okay, we've got to break that concrete apart and start again. Yeah, but I'm sure it does happen. I mean... Look, so, I'm sure it does. Yeah. I'm sure it does. But, um, okay, let's <laughs> see. Gonna... Maybe that's the future. Okay, yeah. so... Uh, let's wrap up. Um, how, if people want to know more about you and get in touch with you, how can they find and reach you? Yep. Okay. So uh, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to to, to message me on LinkedIn. Uh, my blog website, theagiledirector.com, 
Uh, and I'm sure you'll add a link somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, otherwise, yeah, just just shoot me an email. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on my accessible blog. guy. What's your email ID? Just to complete it. Your, your uh, email. ID? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, your email. Uh, Evan, uh, my email is Evan E V A N at theagiledirector.com. Okay. Thanks so much. And uh, look forward to speaking to you again. <laughs> I look forward to it as well. See you around. Okay.